here we are coming um, once again to our study in what, what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. We've spoken about this many times before. We want just, you know, to make sure everybody understands uh, the, the context of what we're doing here on Sundays, making our way through uh, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. That is the section of scripture that is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And each, almost each time we have taught, we have also wanted to remind everyone of, you know, what is the essence of the teaching here. And what we have said in a variety of different ways is that these teachings are a description of what life looks like in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was inaugurated by Jesus at his first coming, and it will come in its fullness universally at his second coming. So we've talked about how we're already in the kingdom and how the kingdom is, it's now but not yet fully realized. So what the Sermon on the Mount has been is instruction for those who are the citizens of the kingdom. So the verses that we just read are actually the conclusion of the instructional aspect of the sermon. So, so today when we finish up, we will have finished um, the sermon in, um, in the sense of it being instruction for us as uh, citizens of the kingdom. When, when we go on into the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, exhortations and warnings that Jesus is giving and then a, a real call to a final or a final call to the application of the sermon itself. So today we are going to look at um, three things that Jesus addresses here. Now, under normal circumstances, meaning if we had a ton of time and Christmas wasn't just around the corner and we weren't scheduled to do our Advent series, we would probably take these three topics and look at them uh, as individual uh, teachings. But we're going to bring them all together today um, for the sake of keeping up with, with where we need to be. So the three things that Jesus addresses here in the verses that we read are, number one, um, the, the subject of judgment or judging others. And we're going to look at this as uh, righteous judgment. That's verses 1 through 6. In verses 7 through 11, Jesus then brings us back around to the subject of prayer, which he has already taught on, but he's going to circle back around to it, and he's going to encourage us to have confidence and also perseverance in prayer. And then in verse 12, verse 12 is the, is the final verse of the instructional aspect of the sermon and it's there we have the the kingdom ethic summarized 
or you could say the Jesus ethic summarized. So that is what our journey looks like here today. So let's jump in and look at verse one. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So this, this is um, the, this teaching on judgment, I think has been misunderstood and misapplied by many, many people. So the question is, you know, what, what does Jesus mean by this? Are we, are we not to ever judge under any circumstance? Well, we're going to see in just a second that that is not what he means because in the very context itself, he's going to, he's going to encourage judgment or discrimination, uh, the, the, the necessity of being able to distinguish between right and wrong. That, that is a judgment. But the misunderstanding and the misapplication is often seen in a scenario like this. Let's say there's somebody who, um, as, uh, as a believer, but it doesn't even have to be a believer, but you know, somebody who's behaving badly, living sinfully, and someone comes along and calls them out on that, and oftentimes their response is, hey, don't judge me, man. Because after all, Jesus said, do not judge. And so a person who's doing that, and maybe you know, we've even done it ourselves, a person who's doing that is a person who actually misunderstands and is misapplying what Jesus said here. That, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And like I said, uh, that can't be what he's talking about because he goes on and he tells us that there are places for judgment. So in verses three through five, Jesus tells us that we can judge others if we've judged ourselves first. In verse six, Jesus refers to some people's behavior as being like dogs or pigs and says that we are to be able to identify such. And then down in verse 15, which we won't get to today, but Jesus refers to certain prophets and uh, certain prophets as false prophets, calling us to make a judgment call between true and false prophets. So since the Lord is not forbidding us from passing judgment altogether, the question then is, what is he forbidding? And the answer is going to come to us as we take a, a fuller look at what the scriptures have to say about this subject. Now, sometimes if we have a difficulty in uh, understanding a passage, the first thing we do is we look at what preceded it and what follows it. Okay, let's, that's called looking at it in the context, right? We, we need to be careful to not just take a, a single verse and pull it out and interpret it apart from its context. And generally speaking, there, sometimes there are singular verses that you can do that with. And generally speaking, if you just look at the immediate before and after, 
you can get it. But there are other times when we won't understand something until we look at it even more broadly in the context of a larger portion of scripture. And so when we look at the subject of judgment and try to understand what is it that Jesus means, we need to look at a larger portion of scripture, remembering that scripture doesn't contradict scripture, but rather scripture clarifies scripture. Now, just remember that. Scripture doesn't contradict Scripture. Why do I say remember that? Because you're going to meet all kinds of people that are going to tell you, if they haven't already, if you haven't met them already, they're going to tell you, oh, you can't trust the Bible. The Bible is full of contradictions. I cannot tell you how many people have said that to me personally over the years. And I can tell you that I have, on occasion, when somebody has said that to me, I have just done the simple act of challenging them by handing them a Bible and say, could you show me a contradiction? I have yet to have a single person show me a contradiction. Usually what happens is people say, oh, I, I don't want to do that. It's just, you know, it's just full of contradictions. I know it is. Well, how do you know it is if you've never really, no, it's, it's, it's okay. I don't know. We don't need to. Uh, you know, they, so you know, they come off with this big, bold uh, Bible's full of contradictions, and then when asked to show even one contradiction, they're at a loss to do it. Because Scripture doesn't contradict itself. Scripture clarifies Scripture, and that's what we're going to see here. So we're going to look at uh, five forbidden judgments, and we're going to do this quickly we won't go into a ton of detail, but, but these are the judgments. When Jesus says, do not judge, these are the things that he's talking about. Number one, he is forbidding us to judge beyond God's requirements. You know, so often when, when people are judging other people, and especially Christians, they're judging them uh, in regard to things that God hasn't even <laughs> uh, isn't even judging people on. They're, they're judging beyond God's requirements. God did not say this or, or that. He didn't say, uh, don't listen to that style of music or uh, don't wear those kinds of clothes or you know, things like that, that that are so often the the petty things that we judge one another for. So in the letter to the Colossians written by Paul, he says this, he says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. So in the Colossian church, there were Christians that were judging other Christians because they weren't uh, eating the right things or drinking the right things, or they weren't attending the right festivals and so forth. These are things that were connected to the Jewish law that no longer had any bearing on the Christians, but some Christians were judging other Christians in relation to them. So what they were doing in essence is they were judging beyond God's requirement. So we don't wanna do that. And we have to remember that every believer is the servant of the Lord. And Paul in writing to uh, the church in Rome, he asked this question to the Christians who are judging each other about these kinds of things. Some ate meat, some didn't eat meat, some drank wine, some didn't drink wine. And they were judging, they were divided. And Paul asked this question, he said, who are you to judge another person's servant? To their own master they stand or fall. 
So, Jesus is talking about that. Uh, secondly, it's forbidden to judge according to outward appearance. Oh, how often do we make a judgment uh, based on outward appearance? The problem with outward appearance is we don't really know all the details. We don't really know what's going on. We might assume something is happening. So recently there's a celebrity woman who music and tattoos and things like that, maybe you have heard of her, um, Kat Von D. Um, so she's recently become a Christian and she was sharing her story about you know coming to faith and a bunch of Christians were all upset that she hasn't changed her dress style or that she was wearing her makeup the way she was wearing her makeup or you know all of these external things they end up Oh, I don't know if she's really a Christian. I, I don't think she could really be a Christian because after all, if she was really a Christian, she would be. So what are they doing? They're judging according to outward appearance. Jesus said not to do that. He said in John 7, 24, he said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. <laughs> the interesting thing is this statement from Jesus was directed to people who were judging him because he didn't look like what they thought the Messiah should look like. So he says to them, don't, don't judge. You're judging according to outward appearance. Judge righteously. Uh, thirdly, we're not to judge self-righteously. Jesus told this story, it's recorded in Luke 18. He said, uh, it was an illustration, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Now just imagine the audacity of something like this. I mean, just think this morning if we uh, just paused, I said, hey, let's just pause for a moment, let's stand together. And, and let's just pray for a moment. I mean, think of the audacity of somebody who would say, Lord, I just thank you that I'm not like the person next to me in this row. <laughs> because obviously I can see by looking at them what they really are, but, but you know that I'm not like that. I mean, that, when, you, when you think of it like that, how insane is that? But this, when this happened. Jesus is telling a story of something that undoubtedly really happened. So judging self-righteously, putting ourselves above others. Um, fourthly, we're not to judge mercilessly. James chapter 2 verse 13 says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. And then Fifthly, we are not to judge finally or um, we're, not, we're not to, to judge finally, meaning we're not to pass the final verdict on someone. So we're not to conclude that a living person is beyond the grace of God. That would be a forbidden judgment, to look at somebody and to say, that person because of who they are or what they've done or whatever the case might be, 
uh, that person is beyond salvation. That person is condemned. We're not to do that because we don't know that. That's, that's not our call to make. That's God's call to make. Now, wrongly judging one another among Christians is epidemic in the church today. I mean, it is, it's unbelievable how out of control this, this is in the church today. Now, I don't know if it's, if it's been in people's hearts for decades and decades and decades, and it just didn't have the opportunity to come out. And now because of social media, we get to kind of see what's inside of everybody. I don't know what the, the reason behind it is, but it is a fact that it's like an epidemic today in the, in the Christian church that, that Christians feel an absolute freedom and a justification in judging their brothers and sisters. It's almost like it's just part of what we're supposed to do. That's how frequently people engage in it. And it's always, it's, it's, it always comes down to um, an appearance kind of a judgment without really knowing the details. So a few years ago, um, the hip hop artist Lecrae, who is a musician, he's an artist, right? So he was invited, this was in Georgia, he lived in Georgia. So he was invited to this, um, bipartisan event, bipartisan meaning politically bipartisan, this event where, you know, different people, Democrats, Republicans, they were going to speak or whatever. There was music, different things. So he was invited to, to go there along with others and to share uh, some of his music. Well, he did that. And, you know, he, he would say afterwards, I didn't even know exactly what it was that I was doing, but I, but I agreed to go do it. Well, um, I remember a Christian, a person who I know, uh, went on YouTube and just went on the, the biggest rant that you could imagine about how horrible Lecrae was and how dare he do that and what a betrayal to the cause of Christ and, and all of this just absolutely over-the-top crazy stuff. And, and I thought to myself, how did this person come to the place of thinking that this is okay? That, that this, this is something that Jesus would commend or approve or encourage. It's, it's completely out of control. Some of you have heard me and those of us who teach on Sundays uh, quote rather frequently, Timothy Keller. Uh, Timothy Keller is one of, the, one of the greatest gifts to the church of the, the early 21st century. Tim passed away in um, May of this year of uh, pancreatic cancer, tragically. And the thing that was completely insane to me was to see Christians online rejoicing that Tim had died, not rejoicing that Tim had died had gone to heaven, but rejoicing that he died because God struck him down because 
he held particular views that they didn't like. I actually had direct connection with somebody who said, it's good that he died because he believed in an old earth rather than a young earth. Wow. So if you're a Christian and you believe in an old earth, watch out. You might get struck dead because that's one of the things God kills people for. And that's what, that's what this person was insinuating. That's insanity. Oh, I'm glad he's out of here because, you know, he never would. He, he never came down and, and took a hard stand against abortion. So we're better off without him. Or he would sometimes say something good about a, a member of the political party that I don't agree with. So better off without Tim Keller. People were saying this. Christians are saying this. This is what I mean about the epidemic of judgment among Christians. Where did we ever get the idea that that kind of behavior is okay when Jesus says clearly, do not judge lest you be judged? I mean, th this, is, this is the stuff that he is talking about. Now, now, notice Jesus goes on, of course, and he gives an illustration. You know, some people have asked whether Jesus had a sense of humor. I think he did, and I think we see it come out right here in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How could you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? I mean, just visualize what that even looks like. How, if you have a plank in your eye, how do you even approach your brother to, how do you even see the speck in your brother's eye? Let alone, how do you approach them? And I think Jesus is illustrating this in somewhat of a humorous way to show how absurd it is that we would engage in these forbidden judgments. And so he refers to those who do that as hypocrites and calls them to remove the plank. So how then are we to judge? Because as we've already pointed out, Jesus is telling us not to judge certain ways. So what's the positive side of it? We are to judge righteously. If we're judging, we better make sure that our judgment is based on reality, not on our perception. We are to judge righteously, truthfully, and mercifully. Because like Jesus said here, he said, and, th and this would be so good if we all just simply remember this, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So you might say, well, you know, I've got a high standard and I'm judging according to that standard. Fine, remember this, you will be judged by that standard yourself. And isn't it true, we've all had moments and experiences, I would imagine, I know I have, where you're judging someone and then you realize like, you know, I kind of do the same thing. Just maybe, maybe it's a little bit of a different scenario, but, but I kind of do the same thing. And, you know, Paul asks this question in Romans chapter 2. He says, 
He says, you who judge another, you're actually condemning yourself because you do the same things. You just do them in a different fashion. So, we are to judge righteously, truthfully, and mercifully. So now Jesus moves from that to prayer. So remember, we looked in depth at the Lord's Prayer. We talked about um, the fact that it's the privilege that we have as the children of God. We, we looked at those different uh, aspects of the prayer that we all prayed together this morning. So Jesus circles back around to the, the subject of prayer. And I think this is just an important thing to remember is that as Jesus is finishing his teaching, he brings us back to prayer, which is a reminder of how important prayer is. Prayer is one of the most important aspects of our lives as, as the people of God. It's one of the great blessings that we have been given as the people of God. And yet, isn't it true that it, so often it's one of the most neglected things in our lives as believers? And I will raise my hand to say that I am frequently guilty of neglecting to pray. I frequently find myself all tied in knots over any number of situations, and then I come to my senses and think, well, why don't I pray about this? So Jesus is reminding us. He's reminding us that we should have confidence in prayer and we need to persevere in prayer. So look what he says. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. So asking, seeking, knocking, these are all metaphors for prayer. And then he says, for everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Now, it's interesting, these three imperatives are present tense, which indicates continuous prayer, persistence in prayer. So here's a way that, that these Verses can be read, they can actually be read this way, and I still to this day can't figure out why there's no translation that has translated them this way, because this is surely what Jesus means. We could read this, ask, keep on asking. Seek, keep on seeking. Knock, keep on knocking. Ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. Jesus is telling us to be persistent in prayer, to persevere in prayer. And, you know, I don't know about you, but do you look around at the world we find ourselves in at this moment and wonder what kind of madness are we living in and what, what to do about it? Well, listen, we can pray. 
That's what we can do about it. We can do other things, but we can't do anything until we do this thing. We can pray. And Jesus said, keep on praying. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. And then the promise for those who keep on praying, they will keep on receiving. Those who keep on seeking will find, keep on finding. Those who keep on knocking, the doors will continue to be open. But it's the perseverance that is what he is impressing on us. To not give up. To not lose heart. Jesus, um, it says in Luke 18, the very first verse, it says, speaking of Jesus, it says, and he spoke this parable to them to the end that people should pray and not lose heart. And then Jesus tells a story. He tells a story of a widowed woman who um, has an adversary who goes to the judge to get a favorable judgment from him. And Jesus tells us something about the judge. He says he's an unrighteous judge. He doesn't really care about anything. But in the end, the judge, he gives the woman what she requested. And Jesus says he did it because of her persistence. She just kept pestering him until he finally said, oh my gosh, get rid of this woman. Whatever she wants, give it to her. Now, the point is, Jesus is, the point that Jesus is making is if, if the unjust judge will finally give in through the persistence of the widow, how much more will your righteous father, who is the righteous judge, how much more will he not avenge those who cry out to him day and night? So, the, again, in, in this and in that parable, what Jesus is saying now as he comes back around to close this sermon, he's bringing us back to the importance of prayer. And then look what he does in verse 9. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So here, Jesus is comparing and contrasting human fathers who are evil by nature with our good and righteous heavenly father. And how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Listen, we can't lose heart in prayer. We have to persevere. We have to keep praying. And maybe there's something that you've prayed about for quite some time and you have just become so discouraged because you haven't received an answer and you've given up. Go back and pick it up again and continue to pray until you get an answer. And guess what? The answer might be no. <laughs> it might be. But it's an answer. I think we should pray about things until we get an answer. And if the answer is no, then we know that we can... Okay, Paul the Apostle, he talks about his own experience. He talks about having this thorn of the flesh, this messenger of Satan that buffets him. He says, and I sought the Lord three times 
and I think he means there were three intense seasons of prayer about this, and the Lord said no. That's basically it. Paul is seeking the Lord. I've got this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan. I want you to take this away from me. And the Lord says no. And Paul says okay. And then the Lord tells him why. But so he gets the answer. It's not the answer he wanted, but he got the answer. And then he knew how to move forward from there. So for us, as we're praying about things, we, we pray till we get an answer. And thankfully, sometimes the answer is yes. It's the very thing that we have been praying for is going to happen but it, but it rarely happens in our time frame. So that's why we need to persevere. That's why we need to keep going. Some people say, well, you know, I've been praying for this for so long. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a spouse. And you think, what's the use? I've been praying so long and, and nothing really changes. Well, has the Lord told you stop praying? If he hasn't, then just keep praying. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. That's what Jesus said to do. And honestly, for me, I can't tell you how many times this passage has come back to renew me in prayer when I have been discouraged and given up. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Now, we're going to come back to this in the close because Jesus here says, um, you know, you being evil, give good gifts. Your father in heaven knows how to give good things to those who ask him. But in Luke, Jesus says something a little bit different that is going to be very applicable to us as we finish today. But let's move on to the final statement here in this sermon. So remember, this is the instructional aspect that began, um, you know, kind of with the Beatitudes, but more specifically, just shortly after them. But now Jesus is bringing his teaching to a conclusion. And so verse 12 says in our NIVs, so in everything, but another translation and maybe an easier one is therefore. So the word so in everything can be translated and are translated in some other versions as therefore. And as a general rule, when you find the words therefore in a text that you're reading in the Bible, pause and ask the question, okay, what, 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 therefore what? See, because therefore is connecting what's about to come with what has preceded. So now Jesus is going to say something that is based on what he has previously said. Now here's the tricky thing in this particular instance. The tricky thing here is that the therefore, although mostly, will refer to the immediate things that preceded it. In this case, it's bigger than that. So... Here, the therefore is referring not simply to the judging issue or the prayer issue, because when you look at that, it doesn't make a ton of sense. What it's, what it's referring to is all that Jesus has been saying up to this point. And then he's going to summarize everything that he said. So the 
um, the Bible scholar and commentator R.T. France, um, he, he put it like this. He said, the specific ethical teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, comes to its climax in this verse. So in everything, do what other, uh, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. So with that, he says, the whole sermon um, comes to a climax. Therefore, as I'm saying, links the verse not with the immediately preceding verses, but with the whole teaching of the sermon so far, as it relates to our attitudes toward other people and the rule which follows presents in a nutshell the greater righteousness, the distinctive behavior and attitude expected of the disciples. So the greater righteousness is summed up in this, do to others as you would have them do to you. So this is a, su a summary of, of all of that. Now, how many of you have um, heard people refer to the golden rule? You, you heard that? This is the golden rule. When people say, no, I, you know, I don't believe in that stuff, I just live by the golden rule. This is the golden rule. This is what they're talking about. Um, why is it called the golden rule? Well, it, it's interesting. Um, it's called the golden rule because in the third century, the Roman emperor Alexander Severus uh, reputedly had it written in gold upon his wall. This is, it's kind of fascinating. I've been doing a deep dive into Roman history and I feel like I've been living in, you know, a whole nother universe. But, um, so it was interesting to look a little bit into this. So this is, this is a third century Roman Empire, uh, emperor. So this is in the, the mid 200s. And this particular emperor was, although he wasn't necessarily a Christian, he was very impressed by Jesus and by the teaching of Jesus. And he definitely had this uh, statement of Jesus, do to others as you would have them do to you. He definitely had this written on his wall. Whether it was written in gold or not, that's what is not certain. But he definitely wrote it. Now, it's, the, it's called the golden rule because if we actually lived by it, it would change everything. Now, this rule is uniquely Jesus' teaching. Now, some people will say, oh, no, you know, Jesus just borrowed from other people and stuff uh, because this rule appears before Jesus. It doesn't. What appears before the time of Jesus and even among some of the uh, religious teachers of the day was the, um, the negative version of the rule. Even Aristotle taught this and even some of the Far Eastern um, um, teachers taught, do not do to others what you yourself dislike. So they had the negative version of it. Jesus is the one who takes and flips it around and makes it positive. So you are the one who is now initiating the good. 
So whatever you want others to do to you, do to them. Now just think if tomorrow morning, everybody on the planet woke up and said, you know what, I'm gonna live by the golden rule. Even if we failed a lot of times, you know how much better off the world would be if people live this way? If I just went out daily thinking, okay, how do I want to be treated? How do I want people to talk to me? How do I want people to respond to me? How do I want people to uh, respect me? How do I want people to treat me? The world would change overnight. Oftentimes people look at the world and what a mess the world's in and they blame it on God. If there's a God, why this and that? If there's a loving God, then how come these things happen? The simple answer is because people don't obey God. If the human race just said, the golden rule is amazing, we're going to apply that, the world would change overnight. So, as a general principle, to guide us in specific ethical decisions, the golden rule, this is R.T. France again, has not been bettered. I love that. Nobody's been able to improve on this. Jesus said it 2,000 years ago, no philosopher, no one's ever come along and said, hey, I got a better, something better than that. In the positive form propounded by Jesus, it makes a very far-reaching demand for unselfish love in action. Well, that's what we're talking about. Unselfish love in action. And so I think that this is so, again, this is another thing that is so important in the, the moment that we find ourselves in. How do we affect change in the world? Is, is there any hope that the madness that we see unfolding around us and the hatred, you know, hatred cannot forever be contained in words. Hatred will eventually become actions. And we're starting to see that that is happening in our society. We're seeing people that are very hateful and they're very self-righteously hateful. They think, they're, they think it's their responsibility to do justice, to be hateful of things that they see as evils in our society. And so they want to eradicate this. And we're living in a time now, you know, where sometimes there's a comparison that we make between like the Jesus people revolution period of the late 60s and early 70s. and um, you know, where, where we're at today. But, but a, I think a stark difference is that in the, those days, there was sort of a, a cry for love. Today, there's a cry for bloodshed. Now, that's happened in other places at other times. And it was happening at the same time in the 60s in other places. They had already gone to the bloodshed point. But, but man, this is, this is the world that we are entering into, it seems. 
How do we navigate it? What do we do? Well, Jesus taught us, and he summed it up right here. Everything he's taught us in this sermon, he sums it up with do to others as you would have them to uh, do to you. This is the law and the prophets. As one Bible commentator said, do to others as you would have them do to you. This is most of what the Bible teaches. <laughs> this is most of what the Bible teaches. It just keeps coming back around to this. And so God help us. You know, when I look at some of the angry people in our culture today, and many of them are very young, and they're convinced of one thing or the other, and I think one of the most horrific things that I've been observing, maybe you have too, is with the hostage situation, the Israelis that were taken hostage by the terrorist group Hamas, and, and people have put up photographs of the hostages in various places so people could remember them and think about them and in some cases pray for them and so forth. Understandably, um, you know, there's a bunch of young people in our country, college-educated kids who think it's their job to go tear those down, to rip those down. And, you know, I think, well, how do you even reason with that? How do you even explain to somebody how, what a problem this is? I think one way maybe would be to just say, and I've, I've, the interesting thing, I've seen so many young women are involved in this. I'd like to say to a young woman, like, do you have a baby sister or a little brother that you love? Do you have parents you love? College kids probably don't have parents they love, but what about grandparents? <laughs> do, you have, do you have grandparents that you care about? What if someone took them hostage? What if someone had killed members of your family? How would you, what if, what if you wanted to get the word out that these people need help? How would you like people to respond? Would you like them to t come and tear that down off of a wall or a, or a light post or something? I, I don't think you would want that. You see, that's not doing to others as you would have them do to you. But that's what Jesus said to do. And although we cannot control the world, obviously, what we can do is we can pray for the world, that the world will come under conviction and then turn their hearts to Jesus. We can do that and we can do this. We can do to others as we would have them do to us. And in doing that, we fulfill the law and the prophets. But as I said, I wanted to circle back around and close with the prayer thing. It's time to pray. And Jesus wants to remind us, like I said, as he's coming to the end of the sermon, I think it's so significant that he comes back around to prayer again. It's the only thing in the sermon that he addresses twice. He comes back to prayer to remind us to be persistent, and the way we'll be persistent is to have confidence that God will hear us. And so keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And the last thing that I wanna say is, remember I told you that Luke has a similar message as we call 
this, the Sermon on the Mount. Some people have looked at Luke's version and called it the Sermon on the Plain. Um, it's, it's a little bit different, but similar. And of course, Jesus would have taught this over and over again. He would have said different things in different locations. That's another topic. But in Luke's gospel, when Luke records this, at the very end, he says, Ask, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Um, and, then, and then he says, your, your father knows how. Matthew says to give good gifts to those who ask. Luke says to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And my friends, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. The church of Jesus Christ today needs the empowering and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So what are we to do? Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It's, no, it's way past time to settle for mediocrity as a Christian. If you're just living sort of a blasé Christian life and you know, you taking care of your spiritual needs when it's convenient and otherwise you're just busy with other things, that, that time is over. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking? You know what that shows? Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It shows I'm serious. I want this. I don't want to just sit on the sidelines. I want to be in the game. And God help us to get in the game. Like Jesus got in the game when he was nailed to the cross.